Well, thank you for the warm welcome I've already received from so many of you. For those who are new this morning, um, I hope that there may be a chance to say hello and, and meet you uh, a little later. Um, I live and work in Birmingham, actually lived most of my life in Birmingham, grew up there, became a follower of the Lord Jesus uh, as a student in London during my time as uh, a university student there, met my wife Jane and we moved back to Birmingham in 1993 to work with students with the UCCF uh, movements and then in 1999 became accidental and reluctant church planters establishing City Church in Birmingham and have been there working and pastoring there since, uh, since that time. And what we're going to look at this morning and each of the four sessions, two today, two tomorrow morning, is the book of Jonah. And we have, if you have your little booklet with you, some uh, not only points to guide you and to help you through the talk, but also at the end of some of the sessions, some discussion opportunities as well. So you'll see there are some questions there at the bottom of today's page. Uh, sorry, this first session's page. If uh, I think we're going to have a few minutes and opportunity to reflect on that in smaller groups as we go. Now, I dare say uh, Jonah in some, uh, in some ways is familiar to all of us. Kind of everyone knows something about the book of Jonah. I don't know uh, whether you like or are any good at word association games. Uh, you know the kind of games where I say one word and you have to reply uh, with the word most often associated with it. So we could play it now if you'd like. Tottenham. Salt and... Oh, is it vinegar? Is it pepper? Here you go. Jonah and... Oh, the fish, the whale. Yeah, Jonah and the, and the fish and the whale. Most of us probably said uh, the whale in our, in our minds at the very least. And Jonah being swallowed by a great fish is probably one of the few stories that people up and down our, our nation know from the Bible. But the more we're going to look at this little book, these just four short chapters from the book of Jonah, the more I think we're going to discover that the word we ought to associate with Jonah is not the whale, but God's grace. For as we look at it together um, in these sessions, we'll see that uh, the story isn't really about a great fish at all. It's really about a gracious God. A gracious God who sends a great fish to save a rebellious prophet. And how the grace of God then sends a rebellious prophet to save a rebellious nation. So Jonah is a book where we start reading, when we start reading it seems to be all about a great fish, but by the time we finish it I'm sure we'll be celebrating and singing of a gracious God. But as we think about uh, what grace means, I think we'll find that it's a little bit surprising. Uh, grace isn't always what we think it is, and we don't experience it in ways in which we think we might. And in each of the chapters, we see God's grace working perhaps a little bit differently, a little bit surprisingly. And that's why I've called this series uh, Surprised by Grace. So if you have closed your Bible, would you turn again to, to Jonah chapter 1? And uh, I'm going to pray again for us now as we look at that in these next few minutes together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of all grace. And yet uh, we know from the experiences of our day-to-day -day lives how we know and experience your love for us is at times surprising and maybe even perplexing. 
We ask and pray that you, by your Spirit, would reveal to us the extent of your great love, not only for ourselves, but for your world as we read this book together. And help us to learn of your grace to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, most of us know how the story starts, don't we? Uh, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you don't know, Nineveh is the capital city of a cruel and violent empire of Assyria. It was Sin City. Make no mistake, uh, these people were not a nice people. If you turned up the prophet Nahum, which is a, a prophetic oracle against the city of Nineveh, the prophet Nahum writes this, chapter 3, verse 1, Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. Or chapter 3, verse 19, where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your continual cruelty? Murder, lies and cruelty. Bywords for the city of Nineveh. It's quite a sobering fact to, uh, to realise that the nearest city today to the ancient city of Nineveh is one that's also been in the news a lot in recent months and years, and that is the city of Mosul in Iraq, the capital of Islamic State. So as we start, Jonah, we discover God's patience with them has all but run out. Do you see that? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And judgment is all but upon this city of murder, lies and cruelty. But that's not the only shock in our story. It's not that Jonah uh, is, uh, is to go to the city of Nineveh. It's that Jonah decides that he doesn't want to. But Jonah, verse 3, ran away from the Lord. Uh, Jonah's a man on a mission who rebels against that mission. But it's, re it's his reason for running that's the surprise. Jonah's uh, reason for running isn't one of confusion, that he doesn't know what God wants him to do. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. God's word to him has been very clear, hasn't it? And neither was his problem what we think it might be for us, which is fear of the Ninevite people. That doesn't seem to be, as, as we read through this book, the reason why Jonah doesn't want to go. I mean, think for a moment how you would respond if tonight God spoke to you in a dream or a vision and called upon you to go to Mosul with the message of Jesus and to the leaders of Islamic State, warning them that they are under his judgments. No, there would be a good reason to be afraid, wouldn't there? Like going to the capital of North Korea as well with the message of Jesus. But that doesn't seem to be Jonah's issue. Jonah had reason to be afraid, but there's nothing in this little book that tells us that was the reason why he wouldn't go. No, it wasn't that uh, he was a coward, and it wasn't that he was afraid of the people. No, Jonah's problem was actually a problem with God. His fear was that God might turn out to be more gracious than he was able to cope with. And the key verse probably for the whole book 
that I think points us to that is chapter 4 and verse 2. Where Jonah at the end of the story, or towards the end of the story, tells us how he was feeling at the very beginning of the story. Chapter 4 and verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, talking about the repentance of the Ninevites and God's decision not to bring judgment upon them. Uh, Jonah says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee. Why? Because Jonah realised that if he went to Nineveh, and pronounce this message of judgment, that God might just be gracious to a wicked and cruel empire. And Jonah, as a man of God, as a prophet of God, wasn't sure he was ready for God to be that gracious. I knew it. I knew you were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and that is why I didn't want to go. For Jonah, as we'll see through the rest of today and tomorrow, well, there had to be limits, surely, on God's grace. And he was surprised uh, and pretty uh, angry in his surprise at how far God wanted grace to extend. And he couldn't live with the thought that the result of his preaching might be God's enemies experiencing God's forgiveness. And Jonah thought, if I go and warn them of judgment, they might just repent and forgive. Because, do you know what? God is that kind of a God. I know he's compassionate. He's that kind of a God. So if I go, well, he might just let this cruel and violent and wicked people off. See, he's not pleased that, that God's grace really is for everyone. And that it might reach his most bitter enemies. Jonah is struggling to accept the ways of God. He has issues. And rather than obey and trust that God's ways are right, he goes on the run. When God says, go, Jonah says, no. And Jonah, the man of God, Jonah, the prophet of God, ran away from God. Now, I don't know how good your, your knowledge of the Old Testament is, but you might not know this isn't the only time we, we come across Jonah in the Bible. Jonah gets a mention, and we won't turn there now because it's not hugely important to us to our look at the book of Jonah. He gets a mention in 2 Kings, chapter 14. And you'll discover that God uses Jonah in that chapter to restore Israel when Israel is wandering away from God. And Israel as a nation are blessed through his ministry as a prophet. Jonah was, in that sense, a man who was used to hearing from God and knew what it was to be used by God to restore a nation, to bring a nation to repentance and restoration. See, he's not just a, a believer or a leader. He's a prophet of God with a proven track record. 2 Kings 14. And yet what we discover 
is that as Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his little commentary, Man Overboard, on the book of Jonah, Sinclair Ferguson puts it, despite all of his privileges and usefulness, he is a man who slips, stumbles, and falls. And as Christians, we too need to face up to the fact that we can still find it very easy, as we sang in that last song before the word of God was read, to stumble. When called on by God to trust him and take him at his word. Uh, Perhaps you're battling God over something where you know what his word says, And yet the very thing he wants you to do is something in which your heart of hearts you want to say no. It might be uh, you're resisting like uh, Jonah the call to be public about your faith. To talk to your non-Christian friends or maybe your work colleagues about your beliefs as a Christian. It might be that God wants you to repent of a relationship that that isn't honouring to him. It might be that God is asking you to trust him about some aspect of his character that, that you are struggling with. It could be any number of things, couldn't it? It could be that God is a God of justice and therefore that hell is a reality. The Pope, just this week, uh, responded to a, a newspaper article where he was asked a series of questions. And he was asked, what happens to those who don't put their trust in Jesus Christ? Will they go to hell? And the Pope, just this week, chose in his reply to that question to say, no, they won't go to hell if they're people of good conscience. There is someone claiming to represent the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, denying the fact that the only means of salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The key question, I guess, that Jonah chapter 1 introduces us to is this, will we let God contradict us by his word? Will we let him uh, overrule the, the inclinations or first thoughts of our hearts in some aspect of our belief or life? It is true, isn't it, that we see what we want to see and we believe what we want to believe and our culture enforces that every step along the way by telling you, you must do what is right for you. And so there's a Christian version of that, isn't there? The Christian version is this, I'll decide what kind of God I want to worship. And Jonah said, you know, I'm not sure I want to worship the God I meet in the book of Jonah. I'm not sure that's the God for me. Uh, And when we play that game with God and we decide this is the kind of God I'm I'm ready to worship, it means that uh, we become skilled at filtering our reading of the Bible and skilled at how we listen and don't listen to God's word read and preached. You know, we, we just filter out the bits we don't want to hear. Maybe you're filtering now what God is saying to us in his word. You've decided uh, which bits of this sermon are convenient, uh, which bits are inconvenient, which bits you'll remember, and which bits you'll choose not to. Sinclair Ferguson again writes, Jonah had his own desires, plans, and ambitions to fulfil. 
Jonah had his own concepts of how things should be, of how best he could serve God. And so, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. No, Jonah chose to take his life in exactly the opposite direction from the one God had for him. You see, from where he was in Israel, God was calling him due east to Nineveh. And what Jonah chose to do was instead head due west to Spain, 180 degrees in the opposite direction to the will of God that he knew and understood. I have two young children, and as well as uh, reading this uh, Everything a Child Should Know, we're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible in the evenings, and you might know the story of Jonah from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I think that's on there, is it? I'm not sure if that's there. Anyway, um, Jonah gets to Joppa, he gets aboard the boat, and he simply says, one ticket to not Nineveh. (laughs) So I think it's a beautiful uh, translation for children. One ticket to not Nineveh. In running away, Jonah is saying, Lord, anything but this. And yet, what a pointless thing it is to run from God. Uh, Look what Jonah knows about God. Verse 19, um, I am a Hebrew. Okay, well done. I worship the Lord. Okay, Uh, tell me about this Lord, Jonah. Well, he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Where are you going then, Jonah? The God you worship is is the Lord of God of heaven who made the sea and the land. What are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to get on a boat to, to run from him. You see, sin, which is, of course, the Bible word for running from God, is, is always stupid, isn't it? It's always foolish because it's inevitably futile. So we start our book uh, with a runaway, rebellious prophet trying to get away from all that he knows about God. And how easy the path of sin appears, doesn't it? Everything was working so well for Jonah. He bought his ticket to not Nineveh, he got on the boat, and he was away. Maybe it was a day just like today, in the beautiful sunshine and the calm seas. And often when we run from God, in the, in the first instance, in the short term, there can be some benefits. Maybe that benefit is just a sense of release. Oh, God's been pressuring me to do this and I'm, I'm just going to say no and go my own way. And the immediate psychological benefit is a weight lifted. I've, I've just made my decision now and I'm just going to do this. God is asking too much and I've gone my own way and I feel better for euphoria, relief, no doubt more pleasurable for Jonah in the first instance to no longer feel this division between his will and God's will. I think he probably felt okay, maybe even borderline happy about his situation as he got on board his boat, reassured by his circumstances, maybe that Everything seems just fine. 
But friends, here is something you and I have to know and take to heart. Sin is so deceitful. It will lull you into a a false sense of security that it's easier to go my way than God's way. That life maybe works out when I do my own thing rather than God's thing. For Chone, chapter 1 teaches us that this is what sin is telling you. You can sin against God without consequence. That's what sin is telling you. You can sin without consequence. Because, well, God is safe and he's good and he won't do anything about your rebellion. And maybe we think escaping God is the quickest and easiest fix. The solution to our problems. I think that that's so easy to think, isn't it, in the Christian life? To just quietly do a runner from God in that area of life. Maybe some of us here this morning have already boarded a boat. We haven't told anyone about that, but that's what's going on in our lives. We've made a decision, not God's way, but my way, and we've set sail. You found your cabin. You've uh, you've unpacked your suitcase. And for now, well, the weather looks fair. And it seems to be all right. Running from God is sorting you out. You're free at last, like, like Adam and Eve. Just for a moment, just for a split second, it felt the right thing to do. But as one other commentator on this little book of Jonas says, sin will always take us farther than we imagined we would go, faster than we ever intended. And it's because God is good, because God is gracious, that he doesn't leave us in our sin. He takes action to awaken our conscience and save our souls. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. A violent storm arose. We meet the gracious God who disciplines his people. You see God's response? It's not the response we'd want from God, is it? A violent storm Here's a a great question for us this morning. What kind of God sends a storm? A gracious God, really? Maybe it sounds to you more like a a petty God. A a vindictive God. A God who's got issues. Maybe uh, some of us are old enough to remember The Truman Show. uh, A film made, uh, I don't know, a few years ago now, starring Jim Carrey. And uh, Kerry is, in the film, a reality TV star, except he doesn't know it. He's basically born and lives his entire life on a massive TV set. Uh, His whole life has been played out on an island called Sea Haven. And everyone else that he encounters throughout his entire life is an actor, and the world is just this stage set. And the job of the director, who goes, interestingly, by the name Christoph, is to ensure that um, Jim Carrey's character never wants to leave Seahaven, because otherwise the programme would come to an end. 
But when, as a result of a number of things going on in the film, I'm not going to tell you everything, when as a result of what's going on, he begins to twig that maybe his world is fake, he sets off in a boat. And Christoph, the director, sends a... Interesting, isn't it? And there's Jim Carrey hanging over the edge of the boat, arms stretched wide in an imitation of Christ. I won't tell you what happens next. But I don't think it's an accident that in the film, the writers of the film call the director Christoph, nor that he uses a storm to prevent the flight of a rebellious man called Truman. You see, the film is, is a commentary on God, isn't it? The relationship between human beings in, created by God in his world and how it doesn't seem, God seems to be vindictive against those who rebel against him. What does a gracious God look like? How would a good God treat you if you were hell-bent on sin, on a, on a path of life that it was a deliberately rebellious one against what he knew was in your best interest? Now, of course, we as Christians, I'm sure, believe that this is a travesty of the character of God when it, it comes to a film like The Truman Show. When we read of the God that Jesus was willing to serve, we find a kind God, a good God, a loving God, yes. But not a safe God who is indifferent to our wanderings and our sins. No, he, he's never indifferent to us. Just as a, a loving mother is never indifferent to seeing her children playing just a little bit too near to the road. See, good doesn't mean tame or nice. When we're on the run, it doesn't pay for God to be nice. You see, if Jonah had been left to himself, who knows where he would have ended up? Well, in fact, I think we know where he would have ended up. On a beach in Spain. Sounds nice. But a million miles away, from the will and word of God. So God, in his mercy, sends a storm. And he, verse 4, literally hurled, is the word that's used there, like you would throw a javelin. He hurled a great wind. In other words, this is a precision strike. God takes careful aim, he knows what he's doing, and all that he is doing, Jonah will one day declare to have been for his good. Now, God isn't trying to smite his prophet, but save him. God is trying to, to stop a runaway prophet, and yet it's a lesson that proves painful. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of, spirit, uh, father of spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We discipline those whom we love. 
And a genuine Christian may well experience the chastening storms. Maybe you know that. Um, You've known that from the way that God has brought you to your senses in the past when you have wandered from him. Maybe you're, you're in the midst of, of that right now. You know that all is not well between you and God and God isn't la- letting you go. He, he's pulling you up short, so to speak. Are you ready to accept that God might discipline you in this way? That his grace, the, the expression of his love may surprise you because it's not pleasant but it's his only way to get you to listen. Verse 11 of Hebrews, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's a demonstration of love. And because God is a gracious God, a genuine Christian will never come to ruin in attempting to flee from him. No, it's surprising grace because it hurts, but it's grace nevertheless because it's God's way of keeping you What might it take for God to bring you back to the foot of the cross? And are you ready to say to God, Lord, if that ever happens to me, if I should ever run from you in this sort of a way, if that would ever happen, please use whatever it takes to bring me back. Lord, don't leave me in my sin. Please, O Lord, do not let me wander so far that you would never bring me back. Isn't that what we want God to do? Are you ready to say, do whatever it takes, Lord, as a manifestation of your grace and love to me? Sinclair Ferguson says, what is of primary importance is that he was restored, not how he was restored, and it might look very different from one life to another. God is able to use means to bring us back to himself, which are as undramatic as these means in Jonah chapter 1 were dramatic. He knows the way to bring us back. We must allow him to be the judge of what is necessary to restore us to his presence. Well, we move from a rebellious prophet, a gracious God, to fearful sailors who find God. There's a lot of humour in this chapter, isn't there, in a way? It's a very dark humour, but it is a divine comedy, the book of Jonah. And uh, one aspect of that humour seems to be the fact that these Gentile pagan sailors, and sailors then and now are pretty sort of raw and rough and ready, these guys seem to have a greater knowledge of God than he did. Jonah seems to be the last person in the story to know what's going on in this chapter. The sailors on the ship are the ones who grasp how desperate the situation is and discover that time is running out. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid. And they're so desperate to do what it takes to get right with whichever god that they've offended that they pray to their gods, they throw the cargo into the sea, they cast lots to find out why this storm has been sent. And verse 7, the lot fell on Jonah. And their questions flow. Verse 8, tell us everything. Jonah's reply, I'm a Hebrew and I worship, or more literally, he says, I fear the Lord. 
There's a bit of humour there. I fear the really, Jonah, you fear the Lord, that's why you're running from him. Okay, thank you. Verse 10. When they discover that he's on the run from God, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? Again, more literally, it says of these sailors, they feared a great fear. So he says he fears the Lord, but they actually fear a great fear when they discover that he's a runaway rebellious prophet against the maker of heaven and earth. Yeah, Gentile, pagans, know more about how to relate to God than the prophet of God himself. But isn't that true sometimes when maybe a non-Christian has a better idea of what the Christian life ought to look like than a Christian? As as they watch you and I uh, and they're thinking, I thought you were a Christian, really? Well, why, why why did you do that? And why, why would you say that? And, and they just seem to know. It's a sixth sense, isn't it? And they're thinking and looking and asking questions. And sometimes that can really commend the gospel. The very first person I saw come to faith after I became a Christian was one of my flatmates. And he said of a mutual friend who was a Christian, she's got something that I haven't got. And that started him on the path to faith. But it's also the case that that as a non-Christian watches the life of the Christian, they can also see not only the beauty of holiness, but they can also see the contradiction when we as Christians are running from God. And it's more obvious to them than it is to us. Now, we need to pray and ask, Lord, may our lives, may our witness be that of integrity so that we are a blessing to the pagans around us, more than we are those who put their lives in danger. Maybe not physically as Jonah was putting these sailors' lives in danger, but we can put their lives spiritually in danger when they look at a Christian and think, well, if that's Christianity, I'm not really sure I'm interested. Well, what they didn't know about God, verse 5, made them afraid. But then the more they learnt about God, the greater their fear became. They feared God with a great fear, verse 10. They were shocked that Jonah had sinned against this God. And they had an awe for him that was sadly missing from them. Sorry, from Jonah. The guilty prophet who atones for sin. Now, for the very first time, verse 12, in the midst of this raging storm, when everything seems to be lost, finally, finally, verse 12, Jonah confesses his sin. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, is Jonah repentant at this stage? Commentaries argue it around, but I don't, know, I don't think we know for sure. Not at this stage, we'll come to that after coffee. But he does understand this, doesn't he? He understands that the wages of sin is death. That, that he deserves to die. Pick me up, throw me into the sea. It will become calm, it's my fault 
that this storm has come. He knows that our rebellion against God is deserving of punishments. And if you're here, just uh, here on this weekend, and you're, you're not a Christian, or you're not really sure whether you are a Christian, can I say, I'm really glad you're here. Um, but can I remind you that we cannot keep saying no to God, the God of the universe, our maker and our Lord, and think he will not allow that sin to go unpunished. Well, whatever is going on in Jonah's mind, once again, these pagan sailors shame the Christian prophets. Because when he says, pick me up, throw me in, and it will become calm, their response is, we can't do that. And uh, he, instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they couldn't. The storm was so strong. The sea grew even wilder than before, verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and this raging sea grew calm. See, they feared God the way he should have feared God. And Palmer Robinson says, He, the believer, closes his heart to another people, the Ninevites. These coarse sailors do everything they can to spare the life of Jonah. Even after he has caused the loss of all their cargo and now may cause their loss of life too. Do you see the sailors are doing everything they can to save life? And Jonah in his rebellion is doing nothing at all to save the city of Nineveh. O Lord, do not hold us accountable. But then they threw him into the sea. The storm died down, the raging sea grew calm. And verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Do you see that? And made vows to him. The men saw that God's wrath was satisfied against sin. And because the prophet died, their lives had been spared. And their response is worship. The same storm used to, to bring Jonah to his senses is the same storm that saves the sailors. Well, it's a terrible act of judgment that saves their lives. Do you see that? An act of judgment that is saving their lives. Nothing less than the death of Jonah could save them from God's wrath. And it's here that we find the book of Jonah pointing us to the Lord Jesus. Nothing less than an act of judgment could save them. And nothing less than the death of Jonah, the prophet, could save them. And we know, because Jesus says, this little book is all about me, when he comes. In fact, uh, Jesus only ever says uh, that there's one person in the Old Testament, of whom he's the direct fulfilment. And it's not Moses, it's not Elijah, or Elisha, or anybody else. The only person that Jesus says, you know that guy, well that's really, that's me. And it's Jonah, the only person. When he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Now the big difference between Jonah's death and Jesus' death is, of course, that Jonah was dying for his own sin. Jesus, for ours. They both suffer the wrath of God, don't they? But Jesus is bearing our sins as if his own. And in Mark's Gospel we read, When the Roman centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Well, what response do we make to the God who poured out his wrath upon himself rather than us, his rebels, so that we might not have to suffer that too? Finally, briefly, a gracious God who forgives all who truly repent. Where does sin leave Jonah? Where does his rebellion get him? Well, he's essentially dead in the water, isn't he? But for the mercy of of God, his compassion, and yet we discover that God's grace is even able to reach a man at the bottom of the ocean. So we read, the same Lord who sent the storm, verse 4, sends the fish, verse 17. The same God. He knew what he was doing all along. Someone has said it was God who arranged for the sea creature to be at just the right spot, at the right time, with just the right amount of hunger, so as to want to swallow a foolish prophet who had just been cast overboard. I mean, talk about precision timing. I I mean, what did he have? A minute? Margin of error? One minute? One one breath? (coughs) He was dead in the water, sinking to his grave. God's grace is surprising, isn't it? A friend of mine said recently, if your God is safe, he's not the God of the Bible. That's what Jonah discovered, isn't it? If your God is safe, he's not the God of the Bible. But we need to add a second statement to that. If your God is not gracious, he's not the God of the Bible either. And Jonah discovered both in chapter 1. And what we'll see after our coffee break and as we head into chapter 2 is that experiencing God's surprising grace might just change us too. Let's pray. Grace is amazing. We've sung that already this morning. But grace is surprising too. And Father, help us to say in our heart of hearts that Lord, we are ready for you to do whatever it would take to bring us back to our senses and to our right worship of you, should we ever wander and rebel against you and your word and your ways. Forgive us when our hearts are so inclined to want to make you in our own image, to rebel against your word, but help us to trust and to take you at your word. And would you keep us walking closely and humbly before you in Jesus' name. Amen.